Welcome to RAS Talk, a podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production. Brought to you by RASTEC, the premier publication for RAS professionals. This podcast is sponsored by Innovacy. Innovacy, aquatic solutions built for life. Hello and welcome to RAS Talk. This is Marilyn de Guzman and co-host Brian Vinci is also here today. Hello, Brian. Hello, Marilyn. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Uh, Lots of goings on in the recirculating aquaculture systems world. Uh, This week, um, some mishaps at Atlantic Sapphire, and then, of course, um, the Seaspiracy documentary on Netflix creating a lot of uh, discussion out there about uh, the oceans and uh, fishing and aquaculture. Yeah, so that Seaspiracy is definitely going to be something we'll talk about today in the podcast, which brings me to our guest for today. Uh, we have Jennifer Bushman. She's an advocate of sustainable aquaculture and has worked with numerous aquaculture companies and fish producers to get their products to market and more importantly, help these organizations tell their sustainability stories to consumers. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with an overview of how you got started in this journey to becoming an advocate for sustainable seafood. Well, I I tell the story of my grandfather on a third generation family cattle ranch in rural Colorado, and I fell in love with a fish, the fish that he was fishing for on the on the creeks of Colorado, a beautiful trout that they plucked fresh out of the water. The trout was um, on a creek that was abundant with fish paired with all of the beautiful things that they were raising on their farm. And then of course, what they were selling in a general store. And then fast forward, I was actually um, in my thirties and I was working on a show for the television food network. I had written several cookbooks and was on a cookbook tour. And I got a call from my agent and they said, we are going to bring to market what we think is the most sustainable ocean raised salmon. And then I fell in love with a second fish. And what I found that I loved and what it what connected the dots for me was this journey that wasn't being told of the water farmer and those hands and those faces that really reminded me of the same work that my grandfather did. And, and after that, I was quite literally hooked. I find it interesting that your background in uh, media, using that experience and taking it and applying it. Can you give a couple examples of the seafood brands that you've worked with and how you worked with them in bringing their products to market? Yes, of course. I mean, the the first thing that I do is whiteboard out, get to know the company and whiteboard all of those characteristics, all of the hopes, the dreams. Uh, if a, if a, a company is already in market, what this means to them, what they'd like to be doing that they're not doing. And I would say 99% of the time after that day of whiteboarding and getting to know one another, what they originally thought they needed ultimately wasn't what they really needed. And so as someone who is a strategic development consultant that focuses only on aquaculture, I get to touch all parts of the ecosystem. So if it's, for example, in the case of the salmon, that was Verlasso salmon. And that fish was not even out of the water yet. 
So we were building what the brand would be. We were building what those market intersects would be. I mean, coming up with branded fish paper so that the fish could talk after it was plucked out of the fish and seafood case. So the consumer understood the journey. We were the first ones to use QR codes and gill tags in order for the brand name to continue to be built. So it was a really amazing journey. And what was amazing about that timing over a decade ago was that first and foremost, the certification and recommendation space was definitely not as developed. Mm -hmm. And so we were sitting in conversations with Seafood Watch where land-based aquaculture was a solid green and ocean-raised was a solid no. And we said, how do you incentivize the farmer? Help us help you because this is happening on the water anyway. So we should be engaging at a higher level and help farms improve. And ultimately, Verlasso, it made the cover of USA Today, became the first ever ocean-raised salmon to be granted a yellow recommendation from Seafood Watch. And then at that point, I was really off and running. You know, you it takes a village. There were a lot of incredible people that worked on the brand, worked on the fish, helped build the sales team, all of that hard work on the ground in those early days to change a discussion. And the discussion was feed matters. You know, it's not just about antibiotics and, and chemicals. It also is about ocean depletion and fish in fish out ratios. And, and 10 years ago, you know, ASC was only a glimmer in the hope of what would be to come on certifications. So this was really new ground. And as I got to develop that and really learn, you know, kind of as I went, then other companies came. I've worked on Pacifico Aquaculture, River and Trout, um, to name a few, and, and also had the honor of working on the fair trade aquaculture standard as it was just being developed. And so that's, you know, it, it, you never really know. Careers are kind of a twisting, turning, winding road. But I've had the real pleasure of working with best in class ethical water farmers. And what I say now is my my life's work and my life's journey brought me to Quarry Arctic, which is a third generation family farmer that's farming salmon in the Arctic Circle. And to be able to connect those dots with a family and the intention on the water, a community, an island community, um, and all of the things that it takes to sustain that community, it really brought everything full circle for me. I'd like to drill down a little bit on something you just said, which was Early on, when you started your work, there were not so many certifications or certification bodies um, in the space. And of course, that has changed over the last decade. Now we have many types of certification and, and many, uh, whether it's aquariums or nonprofit organizations, uh, putting out uh, lists of things, green, yellow, red, or good or bad. And our listeners who are sometimes uh, RAS farmers or RAS operators or you know, folks in the marketing space on, for the RAS producer are wondering how to differentiate themselves when the space seems kind of noisy to me. I mean, there are, there are so many certifications and there are so many voices out there, uh, whether they're throwing stones or trying to promote the product. How do you think the RAS operators, producers can address that noisiness out there? I mean, I think it's fair with the growth in the market now, you know, uh, Aquari Arctic is the most decorated farm salmon in the world, and they hold no less than eight different certifications and recommendations. And it takes two full-time people to keep up with those. And that, especially depending on the scale that you're farming and what you're able to um, get from that, you know, that premium on the fish, 
small family producers. These are things that uh, goals that they really probably could never achieve. And so I think that it's, I, I know that there are certain things that are very important that are really resonating in the market right now. For example, sustainability denotes safety. That um, if we were to have had a conversation about sustainability two years ago, a lot of that with the consumer would fall have fallen on deaf ears. The buyer found it to be important, but the consumer really didn't value it. It was just a box that they needed to check. So if you tried to have a conversation about feed models, the consumer didn't care. But now sustainability denotes safety, how it's handled, how it gets to the store, making sure that it safely can come to my home in a world where I feel that the world is really attacking me and my body in the middle of a pandemic. So really talking about what that chain of well-being is, what hands there are, featuring the farmer, featuring it not as a production fish, but really an understanding of this beautiful ingredient that's got the honor of participating in my you know, dinner table. And then the other thing I would say is nutrition, because we know now that there's a gap in feed models and nutritive properties that are coming out of certain species of farmed fish. And nutrition is a differentiator. Um, we tried to sort of hold everyone back in making claims that omega-3s would help you fight COVID or would, you know, help you get over COVID. But there are so many nutritive, um, you know, things that can happen from an omega-3 rich diet, not the least of which, you know, is health welfare as well. So really looking at that, making sure that you know what your nutritionals are, that you're careful, but you're making the right claims. Those are all things that can really engage your customer base. And it certainly can create differentiators that then give you that little bit of an uptick in price so that you can be successful. Right. So it sounds like there are these, as you said, things that resonate or that you have found that resonate with the consumer that the RAS producers, in particular, the RAS producers um, should be telling their story around. Is that is that fair? That's very fair. But I mean, it's also could be the beautiful environment or the heritage, or do you have solar on the farm so that people can learn about how you're contributing? I think there's, I work um, with Alexandra Cousteau and, you know, she is Jacques Cousteau's granddaughter. And she talks a lot in Oceans 2050 about changing the mindset of those that are needing to feed themselves. And, you know, no one wants to think of themselves any longer as consumers or that we consume goods. We want to be thinking that we want to be thought of as contributors. How does my purchase contribute to economy? How does it contribute to a more environmental, sustainable food um, system? And so I would say that even just the language and the storytelling of changing this mindset from consumption to contribution through RAS? What are those elements that really differentiate it from a more su sustainable, ethical food source makes me feel like I'm that I'm contributing to the fight against climate change or disruptive food systems that only perpetuate bad habits? What are the things that we can do as an industry uh, or producers themselves in particular in terms of helping their consumers to the right information in this social media world where lots of bombardment of information, facts uh, versus fiction, you know, all around. Well, I think, you know, we have to first recognize that humans naturally want simple answers 
to very, very complex problems and that we get overwhelmed. And when we do get something, get into the weeds on a topic, people tend to tune us out. So there are things that you can do, whether it's short, impactful bullet points. I think that people have to feel that there's hope. You can't come out and say that, you know, this is the answer to, you know, the a, a disruptive food system. You have to come out with the solutions. And when you put that solution-based thinking around what you're doing, you can have people feel as if they're empowered. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it really does address in some ways what happened with Seaspiracy in that, you know, we have to have a path that we believe in and we have to be empowered in solution-based thinking. And I think that when we do that in a simple way, people will follow. And then of course your taste buds and, and all of those things end up firing on all cylinders. So if it, if it tastes great and we give simple solutions for putting it on the, on the table, I think that that really is the path to success. Right. Um, you, you mentioned Seaspiracy. I just watched it last week. And Brian, I know you told me you watched it. I'm curious what you thought of this documentary. I didn't quite understand uh, why it was so uh, caused so much controversy because, yeah, there are some things that were misleading. Yes. And, and there are some facts that needed corrected and, and, um, but I wonder, and I'm curious what Jennifer thinks about this, which is these kinds of things, whether they're good or bad, in this case, somewhat negative, um, cause people to talk about the topic, uh, talk about oceans conservation, seafood, uh, fisheries. And is that on, on the whole, is that a positive for seafood or is it a negative? Well, I mean, we have to we have to say that what it did bring was much needed attention to, in some cases to an audience that was not aware of what the welfare of our oceans were and that we are rapidly moving past a tipping point and we have to approach and change the way we're protecting the ocean. So I think that showing the mistreatment of the ocean, which is Earth's life support system, is important. And I think that um, what it didn't do was it the story was incomplete because it excluded those who are there making needed change. And it's a disservice not only to them, but it's also a disservice to consumers who genuinely, I think consumers want, you know, or contributors as we call them, genuinely want to do better and they want to make better choices. And I think that, um, you know, you can, you can do a lot and stir up a lot of negativity and, or you can do a lot and stir up solution-based thinking that really empowers people. So I think one of the things that this film did, Brian, in answer to your question is it, it did bring together NGOs, fishers, and farmers in a way that we've never seen. Uh, you know, I've, I haven't seen in a very long time a farm that was actually posting from an organization that saves the turtles about the fact that they had been, the, the number of turtles that were caught in bite, you know, as part of bycatch was false. So it was really interesting to see that whole group come together against a common enemy and against false a false narrative. I thought that was important. And to your point, I think it was important. You know, this was Biomars. This was a really big deal. Biomar went to Netflix. They did not go to the to Seaspiracy. They took their group of attorneys, went straight to Netflix and said, here's the proof around feed models. This is where we've been. This is where we are. And not only was the film re-edited, 
but so was the, st um, the statements that were on the website and they had to be taken down. This is unheard of. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's bringing people together. It's yes, there are problems, but yes, there are, there is solution-based thinking around it and there's reason for hope. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, I'm glad that the industry is coming together, unfortunately, for the larger population and not being able to tell what the not so accurate facts are. Do you find maybe something that's lacking in the industry is just the consumer facing messaging? I wrote a blog not long ago about the fact that we need to find a way to come together and it's not going to be a traditional you know, Alaskan Seafood Marketing Institute model where there'll be a tick charged per pound. I think NGOs that are very active and, and bullish on aquaculture, whether it's the Walton Foundation or, or Pew or Packard, there needs to be some funding. And then we need to have best in class farms that are, are leading the way, leading the charge. I do want to say that although consumers, you know, viewers were watching this and they didn't have that point counterpoint. There was good news in that the media did also come out against it. So the New York Times wrote a scathing review against this film. You saw um, things in Forbes and other large publications that touch a lot of um, viewers and, and readers that helps. And again, it was this moment where everybody came together and said, wait a second, you know, this was, this was, to a certain extent, propaganda. And by the way, you know, when it comes to things like slavery and the fish and seafood supply chain, when you look at Vulcan's film Ghost Fleet and the work that is ha that happened by a Nobel Peace Prize nominated advocate, you know, the story's been told better. You weren't in danger, and you could have interviewed her, and you could have shined the the right light on this and shown what activism is happening and where we still need to go without this melodramatic yeah. staged way of looking at it. And it has been proven by the edits that, that these were staged encounters. So I think, you know, it's, it's only the beginning. We're still, uh, we're still young in our food system when we look at aquaculture and the history of it at scale. And we're still trying to learn, you know, I, what I say is it's sort of like the teenager, you know, you go off to college and you make a bunch of bad decisions and you get kind of, you know, knocked around a little bit and you drink a little bit too much and you you experiment and all of those things. And then you graduate from college, you come, you know, to the table, you start to look at getting a job and being more of an adult and you grow up. And, and I think that there's a lot of that uh, narrative to be applied to aquaculture. And, you know, the good news is, is that we have the right advocates. We have a lot of NGOs that are behind this and foundations and, and the time will come hopefully sooner than later. Jennifer, you make an interesting point about everybody coming together. The last time I can remember that actually uh, happening, what at least representing the, the industry, uh, was when the U.S. was deciding on how to regulate effluent and how to regulate, um, you know, discharge from the various types of aquaculture farms. In that case, you know, I, me I remember I, I sat at those meetings and uh, there was a lot of common ground. And, and in the end, I think um, it worked to the positive benefit of, uh, of the producers out there and, and essentially the the consumers in the end as well. So, and you've mentioned maybe, you know, that we need something like that, um, whether it's spearheaded by Pew or Packard or, or something to that effect. Um, can you 
talk a little bit more about that? How do you, how do you see that working? What, what does that look like on a functional level? I kind of look at it almost like the Got Milk campaign. We need something that humanizes this journey, this story. We need it to be broad-based. You know, we need it to be, I don't know that it has to be celebrity focused, but we definitely need to look at it like, you know, pork is the other white meat or, you know, have an avocado and the growth of an avocado. These campaigns exist. And when you put what is a reasonable amount of money, not, not, a, not stupid money, but a reasonable amount of money behind these campaigns, we know that after year three, consumers change their opinions about it. And we just have to have the frequency. We need to be telling the stories. I think when I, when I go into Whole Foods Market and I see that there's a story being told with the face of the peach farmer, but then I go to the fish and seafood case and it's sold as 365 salmon, then I become disappointed because I think that it's very important that we encourage those buyers to have that pull through to the, you know, to the, their guests, to their customers, so that they can start to learn which ones they should be supporting and which ones they shouldn't to be able to see signage and start to become educated because it's complicated. You know, the fish and seafood case is much more complicated. When I go to the chicken, the poultry aisle, it all looks the same. Maybe I make a decision on natural or organic, but it all looks the same. When I go and lay look at pork, it looks the same, right? I make it, I make the same type of decision or beef. But when I go to the fish and seafood case, there's 32 choices and I need to have the background and the knowledge about each one. It just, and it's taste, it's costs more and it's difficult to cook. So it's just, it's a complicated issue. And I think that we have to come up with a campaign that brings these solutions. That's fun, you know, kind of the throw the shrimp on the Barbie. Remember that, you know, in Australia, I think there has to be something that just really engages, but also talks about and shows the journey of where that fish came from. Jennifer, I have to say that, one of uh, the RAS producers in the United States, I won't name them, um, has an executive from the uh, grocery uh, seafood retailing side, a long history there. And I've talked with him about checkoff programs. And um, his argument is exactly what you said, is that the seafood counter is so complex that it's, you know, you don't see a bunch of choices of, of you know, redfish or salmon or steelhead, but instead you see, you know, lion caught cod or, um, catfish from the US or catfish from Vietnam and then salmon and scallops. It, it is this very diverse and complex uh, array of things that are presented to consumers. And he's like, that, that a checkoff program, it, it, it won't work. It's just too diverse. Now, I, I kind of hope a checkoff program or something like that, that, like what you've described could work, because I do think it's super important that we get folks to be eating more seafood for the obvious health benefits and also for um, the environmental performance of uh, seafood as a, a protein source. Yeah, I agree. And I also would say that when we look at this and we look at, you know, overall consumption, there was a lot of good news coming out of COVID as we saw the increased consumption, almost 40% of the fish and, of fish and seafood being eaten at home. And if you look at the restaurants that are now beginning to reopen and the balance of delivery, takeout, retail and um, dine in, I think that some of that will have stickiness because now we've kind of gotten over that hurdle to a certain extent. You know, one of the reasons why I formed Sea Pantry 
which SEA Sea Pantry is with the background that I had in, in writing cookbooks and doing this television work. I had said, you know, there were certain items like our grandparents did that we kept on hand all of the time. And when I came up through my teaching and when I started my cooking school, one of the big things we talked about was having ingredients from an Italian pantry. You know, you wanted a good Italian olive oil. You wanted a good balsamic vinegar, tomatoes, canned Italian tomatoes, that sort of thing. And what ultimately ended up happening was that olive oil and good tomatoes and those things naturally became part of our pantry. I don't open up my cabinet and say, oh, this is an Italian pantry because I have those ingredients now. They're just part of my everyday cooking. And I believe very strongly that these items from the sea need to be on hand in the refrigerator, the freezer, and the cabinets with good conservice and tin seafoods, seaweeds, um, fresh fish when it's appropriate, you know, a beautiful filet of sole or something delicate that gets steamed on one night. Maybe it's that you pull out that wild caught salmon out of the freezer on another night. And maybe a different night you make a pasta with a beautiful blue evolution kelp pasta that has a little tinned cockle over it. That if we can get people to feel like they're contributing to ocean abundance, and more contribution to our food system through building a sea pantry and really exploring these ingredients, we can create change. And But we have to start with, these are ingredients that have to be part of your basic everyday narrative. And it can't just be, you go out and look at them as special occasions. I love the idea of a sea pantry. My, my family is a big seafood eater. So um, yeah, that, that would be great. So we've talked a lot about um, consumer education and the need for that and you know the consumer facing messaging that producers uh, need to, to have. Uh, but is there a producer education component to it as well? So when you're working with these seafood producers, what are some of the conversations that are happening there? We're deeply engaged in education uh, all the time. And so some of it is, let's put everything on the table that you're doing. Let's see what the holes are. Are you overutilizing um, in your feed model whole feeder fish? I've, I've been part of projects where you immediately see a hole there, but you still have to create a path and a narrative because that's one of the things that's been sort of trained in the consumer is to talk about what's in the feed. What are you, what are you feeding the fish? So look at the entire thing. What are those things that are going to stand out so that you can start an educational narrative? And there are places where you can tell that story that where you have to make investment. And then there are places where it's easy. Social media has given us a really great opportunity to engage with, with you know, people, chefs, buyers, you know, just by going on to Instagram and knowing a name or watching different conversations, you can find your way into a relationship that can build business as well as build um, messaging around what it is that you're doing. So having strength there, I believe very strongly in good photography. And I've always used a, a photographer by the name of Eric Wolfinger, and we've probably done four to six shoots a year. We traveled all throughout um, uh, the Patagonia as well as several other stops with Jamie Mitchell, a 10-time world champion, surfer and paddleboarder making Journey of the Waterman, full circle Journey of the Waterman, which now has 
1.4 million downloads. We did that in combination with Surfline, but it's it's telling a beautiful story and you have to have good imagery in order to be able to do that. And, you know, I can, uh, Brian, I know you'll appreciate this. I have filmed in more hatcheries trying to make that look sexy than probably anybody ever has. Not possible. Not possible. Can you send me some of those pictures? Very difficult, (laughs) you know, but it's, but it's the lighting. And we even did, we were in uh, Costa Rica on a tilapia farm and we were in the hatchery and we did drone footage. And, you know, we, we've started to learn you, you know, when you show the, again, the farmer's hands holding those babies, you know, and, and, and there seems to be this symbiotic relationship between the, um, between the farmer and the fish so that the fish, so that you can see these, not only these this chain of well-being and these hands that help to rear the fish, but also these stewards of good animal husbandry that tend to be missing in the story. So I always come back to, I need good content to be able to tell that story and engage. And that goes all the way from the water to the plates. And every every project I've ever worked on, you can see that that sprinkle, that little magic that comes from the from the imagery, whether it's go on pacificoaquaculture.com. The first thing that hits you is this incredible one minute video that Eric did for them. They, their farm was all about that. They connected to the farmer. It was all about the people in Isla Todos Santos, these fishers that had fished out their community that were learning now about aquaculture. And when you talk to Omar Alfi and, and Daniel Farag, they will tell you it's about the people and the human side of the story and how they rear the fish. So that was about all the imagery. Everything was about this sanctuary and the journey of the people. When you look at what, what we did for rainforest tilapia, it was all about the water being in a, being in a country where it was, where the farm was all you know, all on based on all renewable energy, where there were millions of gallons of fresh water that were flowing through that farm every single day. Tilapia is thought of as being a muddy kind of dirty fish and to show the pristine environment that it was in and all the fresh water. So you, you're probably starting to see how, if I can, if, if I always say, if you just give me a little crack at the door, we'll figure out a way to make sure that that story is being told. Jennifer, that's just tremendous um, advice and insight. And I hope our RAS producers, uh, owners, operators, uh, who are listening to the podcast um, uh, caught all that. If not, they need to go back about two minutes and re-listen to it. It was extremely important. Um, I can uh, kind of provide a testimonial there. You know, we're a research and development group. And, um, oh, a couple of years ago, we decided to do a whiteboard video to explain some science we did. And as a thought, well, let's try and get some outreach in a different manner. Yes, we, we did the science and we published the peer review publication and it's very dry, honestly, but it was about carbon footprints and producing salmon in Norway ver- versus producing salmon in the US. And we're trying to develop that domestic industry here as part of our, our mission at the Freshwater Institute. So we did this explainer video or a whiteboard video and we have a bunch of other videos. We have videos on how to raise uh, salmon on land, uh, how to purge salmon for good off for good flavor, um, how to clean rats. We have lots of these videos, right? But the video we did that was more targeted at the lay audience, I don't know if you've seen it, is the only one with, with hundreds of thousands of views, right? All the rest of our videos are like uh, 200, you know, a thousand. But this video, which was very purposeful and, you know, we used the uh, 
a video production company that did explainer videos for other industries, um, did have a, a very good um, impact for us. So much so that RAS producers out there have used that video on their websites to help tell their story about carbon footprint and um, you know the, the sustainability aspects of land-based recirculating aquaculture. And on that point, I do want to get your thoughts on land-based. I know you work with a large group of producers out there and, and the industry writ large, but what do you think about uh, this as a solution, the land-based recirculation aquaculture? Do you think um, it has certain aspects that really re that resonate, as you say? And, and if you could just give us your thoughts on that, I think our listeners would appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of different tracks to go down on that. I guess the first one is that the, in order to be able to find a seat at the table in the future of food, it's going to take all inputs to feed a growing population. And there will not be enough room for ocean sites, especially with large scale farming concessions and site planning is going to be important. There are going to be places on land that are going to be more ideal to farm than others. And I think that those solutions, the right species in the right place um, and rearing it in the right way uh, will create what we will then see as the future of food and the future of fish and seafood. So it's, it's important. I think technology now is playing a huge role and these systems are just going to get better and better and more and more efficient, just as we've seen in, in feed and, and in disease management and, and other things. And so I think it's exciting. I mean, I look at, I look at a state like Maine and you've got, you know, you've got a great, like even Dutch Yellowtail and the Kingfish Company coming into a, a state like that. And they seem to be so bullish on regenerative aquaculture and seaweed. You've got obviously ocean raised fish going on. And then you've got a lot of support for land-based as well as, as well as managing the wild fishery. So that's, so it's all of these things. I think it's magic when they're all living in harmony. The challenge again is going to be it needs to look like a farm. We like, as, as I like to relate to protein production back to my grandparents' ranch, we have to be thinking about what we're building. And part of that is what we're building so that we can tell the story, whether it's for chefs to be able to come to visit, whether it's, you know, a, a, an area where there's seating outside and culinary and it's, and it's not sort of a throwaway location where you can, you can film and you have the right lighting when you need it and all of those things, because people don't want to think of their food as manufactured. They want something they can connect to and they can be loyal to and they can understand. Again, simple solutions, but very, very important. That's a great point. Can you talk about some of the most important things that people should know when looking for sustainable ways to consume seafood? I mean, that's the that's the difficult part. I mean, one of the interesting things about Seaspiracy was it it took a pretty big swipe at labels certifications, recommendations. And so the, those tools, I mean, I'm getting lots and lots of questions and concerns when I make a comment like look for the MSC bluefish or the ASC checkmark on a can because people don't feel like they can trust them. So it's, I think that it's, it takes being an active contributor. You have to be active and, and look for and have some background and some context in what you're buying. You know, we in, at Seafood Watch, they had very complex messaging around this and they ended up drilling it down to just ask where your seafood comes from. 
know where the country of origin was. Maybe you can get to catch method, but ask where it comes from. What is the species and what's the country of origin? That puts the ears up you know, to the restaurant where you are, to the grocery store, like, wow, there are people that care about this and I need to be thinking about it. I tell people, ask to see the box because if you pull the box out, usually, I mean, the farms that I work with, they have their certifications and recommendations on the box label. And sometimes there's a QR code. So it's being an active contributor to this process and not just walking into a store and saying, well, I know the grocer, so therefore it's all sustainable. And the more questions you ask, the more curious you are, the more secure you'll feel in the fish and seafood that you're buying. On that point, uh, thank you again, uh, Jennifer, for joining us today. A really interesting discussion around seafood sustainability and the, the things that we need to do as an industry um, to get to where we want to be. Thanks again, Jennifer, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This Rest Talk episode is sponsored by InnovaSea. InnovaSea, aquatic solutions built for life. For the latest RAS-related news, visit rastechmagazine.com. Join us again next time for another engaging conversation on Rastalk. Talk.